Listening Dog Media. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ. I think that was the initial spark. I thought, there's something interesting going on here. Playing music to other people. You know, the communication aspect of it. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. Those are the records, I think, that really began to shape my, if you like, my, my DJ mind. It was a tribal thing. And for us, it was about the clothes and the music. With me now is a DJ, producer, member of the Black Science Orchestra and Express 2. He's referenced alongside Armin van Helden, Roy Davis, Derek Carter in Daft Punk's Teachers. And his remix of Elton John's Are You Ready for Love went to number one on the UK singles chart back in 2003. I think it's very important to share what you're feeling through your records. And those are the famous words that <laughs> a lot of people said in the record shops in London at the time was, you need this. And I remember all I could say to Frankie was, uh, listen, thank you so much for playing my record. And Frankie Knuckles just turned around and said, no, thank you so much for making it. <laughs> He's also got an Ivan Avello Award. Hello, Ashley Beadle. Hello, Chris. Lovely to be speaking to you. Ash, what a life. I know, and it's still going on as well. <laughs> Man of my age, living that life, which is a wonderful thing and a and an utter blessing. Where did you grow up? I grew up, I was actually born in Hemel Hempstead in Hertfordshire, but I was brought up in Harrow from a very early age. And Harrow was a very interesting area, northwest London, just outside of Wembley. At the time I was living there, it had a very strong uh, West Indian population and Irish population for that matter. So we all got on very, very well. Um, and I suppose there was really, via my wonderful father, who's not with us anymore, but that's where I, I kind of um, got into my music, I suppose, via my dad and the greengrocers across the road. So the DNA, yeah, it, it comes from my mum and dad, I should say, and it was a constant in the Beadle household. So tell me more about your childhood. Your dad, obviously, big into music, but he wasn't a professional musician, was he? No, my dad wasn't a professional musician, but my dad's family were. Now, they were in a band called The Reflections. Now, most of my dad's family lived in Hertfordshire in a place called Abbots Langley, and as well as Hemel Hempstead. And they were a kind of a band that I can remember where my dad and my mum would take me to all the working men's clubs in Hertfordshire and they would do like cover versions of like Buddy Holly and Everly Brothers. Yeah, old rock and roll numbers. And I think they were the start really of a big influence on me on how music was created, how it was played. It had a big effect on me and then that combined with my dad's record collections as well as watching TV was very important to me, you know, watching Top of the Pops and music coming out on TV, like the old Grey Whistle Test, for instance. That was a big influence on me as well. And what about the greengrocer? Now, <laughs> we're just going to get to that. So directly opposite my house, the greengrocer, whose name I can't remember now, was an old boy, but at the back of the shop was a record shop. And my dad used to give me money to go over to the record shop to buy records for him and myself. And I distinctly remember the first record 
I ever actually bought for myself was um, Sparks. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. Very, very credible. <laughs> As first records go, good choice. Yeah, well, you know, I'd seen them on TV and I suppose really, you know, they excited me from a visual aspect. I think the music, listening to their music, actually came second. They scared me from a visual aspect. <laughs> <laughs> they did me as well. But I, I remember my dad buying the Sparks album, and I remember he kept playing the track, you know, This Town Ain't Big Enough for the Both of Us, and I thought, I need that. So I actually went and bought myself a copy of the single, but my dad gave me the money, which was lovely. So that was my first ever record I owned. I wonder uh, when you went from, like, enjoying buying music, getting into music, to being, I guess, a bit more fascinated by the way that music was made? Um, well, I suppose, like a lot of, you know, young people, at that time anyway, you wanted to go out, you wanted to experience going to parties with your friends. So music was always there. But I think it was the age of 16 that my dad bought me, for my birthday, a um, mobile disco. Now, that was the change for me because my dad was really into sound systems, etc. So he gave me the mobile disco for my birthday and I was like, wow, this is great, you know. And uh, the first thing I kind of remember doing was um, hiring the local community hall uh, to do a daytime gig and getting all my mates to turn up to listen to me play records very badly. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that was the initial spark, which... I thought, there's something interesting going on here, playing music to other people, you know, the communication aspect of it. And I suppose is in raw terms, that's where I started being a DJ. What uh, was that setup like? (laughs) Now, um, I remember it was a console with two belt drive turntables, old-fashioned, two speakers that plugged into it. Uh, They were about waist height. Um, and then I had the um, sound-to-light lights that flashed on and off with the vibration of the music. You didn't actually have to plug them in. <laughs> so I was just king of my estate at the time, you know, with the uh, with my mobile disco set up. <laughs> and what uh, was that, uh, what turned out to be your, your first gig like? Um, it was, as I said, it was very interesting, you know, the fact that all my friends were like at the time were just standing there looking at me playing records all right a couple of them danced but uh, to be honest with you it was like a yeah it was a bit of a how could you put it a situation where I was like well I better get on with it I better start playing some music <laughs> uh, big question then how did that turn into your career well simultaneously I was going to um, a youth club where I was living at the time in South Harrow and it was called the St Gabriel's Youth Club which we never went in the midweek to it at all. It should stop kids like myself from robbing houses, basically. But, um, you know, we used to go there on the Sunday because they used to have a afternoon disco. Uh, but the music was incredible because there was a guy called Jeff um, and another guy called Brian. Now, Brian was the head of the Earth, Wind & Fire fan club in the UK at the time. And um, Jeff was just this incredible soul boy, you know, but he bought loads of records from a record shop, which I'll get onto later, called the Rainers Lane Record and Disco Centre. So there I started to hear a lot of soul, funk, jazz and reggae. And then what? (laughs) 
Well, that was really, I suppose, with in combination with me having the mobile disco, of me going out and starting to buy records for my own little setup, if you like. And I used to go to Rainer's Lane Record and Disco Centre every Saturday. Um, I've got a couple of friends I met there that are still friends with me now. But those were the beginnings for me of, of really getting into like um, American imports, for instance. And funny enough, I, I remember buying Dance, Dance, Dance by Chic on a seven inch uh, there and on import, you know, which was like, wow. But, you know, those records were incredible. Those, those are the records, I think, that really began to shape my, if you like, my, my DJ mind. It's, it's what I wanted to do, I think. How old were you uh, at this point, Ash? I was about 16, 15, 16. I started as well going out a lot to places like, um, when I could get in places like Scamps in Hamel Hempstead and Crackers, a famous West London club that uh, used to run a brilliant Friday lunchtime gig. I used to travel around my area as well in South Harrow. Uh, to a club called Circles. It used to be called The Bird's Nest before that. I was a lot younger then. But yeah, Circles I used to go to. I used to go to the King's Head, which was on Harrow on the Hill, um, where the school was. There were some great clubs in Harrow, and there was a lot of uh, DJs that would come to Harrow to DJ. People like Greg Edwards, uh, Robbie Vincent, uh, Tom Holland, who I think was quite influential to me as a DJ. You know, they would come to Harrow to DJ. They were hired to play in these clubs so we used to go there you know we were right little fanboys (laughs) (laughs) and were you fascinated by what they were doing um not at first I think it was more of a case of you know you went out and you had a few drinks and you chatted up a few girls and the music went with it it was only I think probably a year you know probably when I was getting into my later teens that I really started to become fascinated by the art of DJing you know actually watching them how they selected music um, what they put together on their playlist, etc. You know, and that was beginning to um, seep into my my musical consciousness, if you like. So, had you left school at this point? Yeah, I left school. I never went to college. I basically the <laughs> the first job I ever had was um, welding shopping baskets together, spot welding. That was my first job. But you know, in those days, all we were interested in doing was getting a wage packet at the end of the week and going out. That's what mattered to us, you know. Those days, you're talking about it was a tribal thing, you know. It was like being a soul boy or being a reggae kid or whatever, what you want to call it. And for us, it was about the clothes and the music. That was all that mattered. Yeah, when did you uh, then progress? How how did you get your first paid gig as a a DJ? My first paid gig? God, um, that wasn't really until I entered into the world of uh, sound systems, I suppose. Now, I was a what they used to call a box boy, which is someone who used to carry the speakers and help out with the wiring and lugging stuff about. There was um, a sound system before the main sound system I joined, which I'll tell you about in a minute, stateside sound system. And they were like a reggae and soul sound system. And they were based in Wembley. And, uh, you know, and I used to go around with my cousin, Ricky, as part of the crew, if you like, to the gigs. And, you know, they were extraordinary. You know, you'd, you'd go to Luton, for instance, and play against um, Sovereign Hi-Fi, you know, whose main MC there was Crucial Robbie, who was a incredible MC. And you learned about 
pretty much in those times, you know, reggae records and soul records that you had to play to make sure that the crowd went mental about those tunes. And I remember, you know, for the first time I actually met um, Norman Jay. I think it was a gig we did in Wilson or Halston, I can't remember. But we turned up to do this gig and uh, I remember we all set up the boxes, etc. And we were all wearing our, I suppose, the clothes that we did the gig in. By the time we set all the boxes up, we were covered in, you know, dust and muck from the speakers and all the rest of it. Didn't really have anywhere to get clean before we started playing our tunes. And Norman and his brother Joey, they had on these um, one-piece jumpsuits over what they wore, you know. And when they went onto the decks, they'd obviously come out of their one-piece jumpsuits that were keeping them protected against all the dust, etc. And they looked amazing. And I remember Norman turning around to me and the rest of the crew saying, first thing you've got to remember about when you rock a sound system is to look good. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a lot to thank Norman for then. Norman Jay is a very close friend of mine. And over the years, um, he's been very influential off the record, I think, really where, you know, we get the little phone call, we bump into him on a train or whatever, but everything he says, it makes sense in that he'll say something and then it will cause like almost like a butterfly effect, I suppose, is the best way to describe it. And he, last book, the book that Norman just written about himself, you know, there was a wonderful piece in there which someone pointed out to me, and it's where I was with my um, the sound system I was in at the time, but Notting Hill Carnival shock sound system, and Norman was ready to give up his career. And he walked around the corner from Good Times, his sound system, sat down where Shock were. And at the time, you know, we were big time. And this was in the mid-80s, late 80s. And uh, the crowd was immense. And Norman, from that point, saw what we were doing. And he walked back to his sound system and said, right, I'm going to restart my career again. I've just gone and seen Shock. They're amazing. So that was a beautiful thing to say. Um, And I did thank Norman for that as well. Wow, what a big compliment. Uh, a beautiful and uh, a gentle man, isn't he's he? A, he's a lovely man, Norman, you know, and uh, he's done a lot and he's still doing a lot now. I mean, you know, he's he's in kind of a part of his career. Where I think he's very happy, he's very comfortable, but he still loves playing music to people and I think that's what's most important to him. Yeah, uh, and I assume the same is true for you. Yeah, absolutely. This is what we do, you know. Um, for me, it's it gives me peace of mind you know to actually stand there and um play music to people is is still a beauty it's still a fantastic thing it's a funny thought that isn't it that's how you've made a living that's how how your career's panned out standing there playing music to people well and and obviously the from the production end of it as well you know the, making my name as a, a remixer a producer and an artist um has always gone in tandem with what i do as a dj as well yeah, well, uh, let's get on to that then. Let's talk about the Black Science Orchestra. Uh, how did that get together? <laughs> well, um, the Black Science Orchestra was, I suppose it was quite organic. It was a thing where, once again, Norman Jay, you know, I was working in Black Market Records in Soho at the time. And this would have been, I think, 1990 maybe, 1991. And I'd gone to a record shop called Cheapo Cheapos, which was just down the road, actually, going into Piccadilly. And uh, Norman was in there, and he was up a ladder, believe it or not, looking at tunes. 
And uh, he turned around to me and he said, have you got this album, Ash? And I went, what's albums, Ash? He knew I liked disco at the time. And I was like, yeah, 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 I've, I've not seen this album. And it was the Tramps 3, a group called the Tramps, who were a Philadelphia vocal group. And he said, uh, you need this. And those are the famous words that <laughs> a lot of people said in the record shops in London at the time was, you need this. So um, I took the record, got it home. And there was a track on there called um, Where Were You When The Lights Went Out. I listened to this track and I was like, completely blown away. And that evening at home, I decided, right, I'm going to go to the studio and I'm going to try and do something with this. And I had no idea what I was doing. And this is the honest to God's truth. So I rang up a friend of mine, Danny Arno, who ran this studio down in Bermondsey, I think it was, around that way. And then I contacted my other friend, um, Rob Mello, who's a famous uh, DJ producer as well. I used to go out with his sister. So <laughs> that was a kind of connection for me. So um, basically, me and Rob went down the studio with Danny Arno and we somehow managed to create Where Were You, which was the first black science record. How, I don't know, but we did. And, you know, Danny was a fantastic help because, you know, as an engineer and he was a big uh, kind of producer at the time, in the early incarnations of UK house music. And, uh, yeah, we got this record, and I contacted Terry Farley at uh, Junior Boys Own, who I didn't really know too much then. I'd worked in the Boys Own office slightly, helping mail out records, so that's how I got to know Terry. And he loved it, and uh, that's when Where Were You came out, through Junior Boys Own. And um, it's an interesting story because when it first came out in the UK, it was totally slept on. No one really got it at all. And then I went to the States, and I can't remember what I was doing over there now, but I went over to America. I was hanging out, and I went to a club, and it was a midweek club called um, Cheetah, and uh, Frankie Knuckles was DJing in there, and uh, there was another DJ in there called Benji Candelario, and he said, hey, you like you Ashley Beadle? And I was like, yeah, 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 you know, because I was kind of introduced. And he went, they're playing your record, man. And I went, what are you talking about? And he was like, they're playing your record. Your record's big, man. And I was like, what record's that? And he's like, where were you? And I was like, oh. And synchronicity, uh, Frankie Knuckles was playing it. <laughs> anyway, Frankie came off the decks, and uh, Benji Candelario introduced me to Frankie. And I remember all I could say to Frankie was, uh, listen, thank you so much for playing my record. And Frankie Knuckles just turned around and said, no, thank you so much for making it. <laughs> and that record, because of Frankie Knuckles playing it in America, flipped back to the UK and then everyone went mental about it. And it became huge club record. It was amazing. What could Frankie Knuckles do to a room, Ash? Well, he could send a lot of people into ecstasy. Basically, it was just he was one. Well, he's the godfather of house. Don't get anyone says, you know, he, he took a sound from New York City to Chicago and he presented how house music should be played. Him and another guy, Ron Hardy. But Frankie was the one, I think, that took the idea of old disco records and they became disco's revenge. They ended up as house music. 
So was he a, a part of your transition from being uh, at first early on a funk and soul DJ and then came the sound systems? But then acid jazz was sort of how you made your name early on. Was he a part of the reason you got into more disco and deep disco? Um, I need to get one thing straight. I'll laugh at all this because I think there's been a lot of um, misprints <laughs> written about me, you know, in terms of how I got into disco, etc. I love disco. I love Hassid House. I love reggae. I love soul. I love cosmish, rock, pop. I love it all. Um, and none of those genres have ever left me. And um, So I'm a bit more than a disco editor, a bit more of a disco producer, if you like. So they all kind of, if you like, came together, I think, to make up a lot of the outfits, a lot of the musical crews, productions, etc. I was involved in. So to say about Frankie being a major part in my, if you like, going forward as a DJ producer, I would say yes. Mm -hmm. Because Frankie would be saying exactly the same thing if you would have been interviewing him now regarding how he thought about music. Yeah. So uh, when did Express 2 start then? Well, Express 2 started the same year, which I think was 92, um, as a Black Science Orchestra, because what happened there was Rocky and Diesel wanted to make a record. And Terry Farley was like, right, well, why don't you go to the same studio that Ashley worked at, Danny Arno's studio? And I kind of just gotten to know Rocky and Diesel because of the Acid House circuit, etc. you know. So um, the funny thing was, Terry then told me, you know, since you're a music producer, Ash, because where were you had kind of blown up, he was like, you can help Rocky and Diesel make a new record. And I just laughed because I, was, I had no idea what I was doing as a producer then. So we went in with a load of records and sampled them. And I remember on the second day or first day, I wasn't quite sure, but I got so frustrated and, you know, the noise levels, etc. I remember walking out of the studio and going home and I left Rocky and Diesel there. Next day, I went back to the studio and they went, Ash, I think we got something here. So I was listening away, had my producer ears on, even though they didn't really exist. And um, there was uh, this noise coming out that um, was Music Express. So we did this, what they call an off-the-board mix, where you're just punching all the buttons on the desk, you know, muting things in and out. And this mix came out and we were like, okay, did a couple more mixes. And I think Rocky gave it to Terry. Terry Farley then gave it to another DJ called Fabi Paras. And I think Terry and Fabi went up to do um, a night up somewhere in the north of England. The next day we got this phone call from Terry and Fabas going mental, going, you should have seen what happened when we put this, uh, I don't know whether they played it off cassette or off acetate, I wasn't quite sure, but apparently the place went mental. So they <laughs> <laughs> decided to release it on Junior Boy's own. And I think originally Express 2 was originally going to be called Rock to House, but Terry um, loved the sound of uh, Express from Mark Moore's um, S Express. So he, uh, he decided to come up with Express 2, i.e., Rocky and Diesel, because there's two of them. Oh. And I was going to be put on the label as an additional producer-writer, but it all fell into place. So Express 2, the name stayed, but there was actually three of us. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that that was the story. Uh, how different were, were the two outfits then uh, from 
Black Science and Express 2. Well, Black Science was always a homage to my love of New York disco. And then that was put through a kind of UK house blender because of how we perceived our music as well. Now, Express 2 was a collision of like European house and US house. So one minute we'd be listening to um, DJ Pierre and then we'd be listening to some European techno um, because that's what we liked. So basically we wanted to kind of combine the two things and it happened and that was what it was about. And it crossed over from, you know, the Express 2 sound, crossed over from the UK over to the US and people like um, Junior Vasquez, a very influential DJ, he was breaking Express 2 over in New York. Yeah, what, uh, 10 years from when you started out then that uh, Lazy was basically a, a worldwide hit, yeah. Well, it's funny because we were going through all different phases as a group, you know. We put out a few more singles after what we classify as the trilogy, which was Music Express, London Express and Say What. And we put out a few singles which weren't as successful, I suppose. We had a bit of a rest. We did the Ballistic Brothers which was uh, a very interesting outfit, which was our, our love of funk, soul, and hip-hop and reggae. So the Ballistic Brothers was born, and that was myself, Dave Hill, Rocky, Diesel, and Ushi Klaassen. Then we decided to restart Express 2 again. Now, when we did that, I think we had left Junior Boy's Own and then went to Skint Records, which was the home of Fatboy Slim. and. Um, we started on a new album. You know, we had a new lease of life. We started a new album. And out of that album came the track Lazy. Now, Lazy was very interesting because David Byrne from Talking Heads, he had approached us about wanting to work with the Ballistic Brothers as a live band. <laughs> Hang on. So what? So he approached you? Yeah. And we were, he wanted us to be his live band. He wanted to take us on a worldwide tour. <laughs> Whoa. And I had to explain to him that we weren't a live band. We were just a bunch of studio geeks who didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> so he was like, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. So he went and got More Chiba, the band More Chiba, to be his backing band on this particular tour. Anyway, it was only a couple of years later that me and Rocky, when we were working on the album for Skint, we were doing a demo in the studio, and me and Rocky had done this quirky little thing we were just having a bit of a laugh I think and it sounded like a Prince record anyway our um, engineer James Brown not the James Brown he was a Caucasian and Australian our one he turned around and said uh, it sounds a bit like Talking Heads what you've done there have you still got David Byrne's details and I was like yeah so I rang David Byrne and he said look send it over so I sent him over the demo of what we'd done and before you knew it He'd, I think it was in a, a couple of weeks, he'd sent back this vocal and it was lazy. And we were like, oh, my God. So then we agreed that we were going to do this track with him. And so we spent um, quite a long time in creating the new backing track for Lazy. And uh, we finished it and uh, we all just looked at each other and we were like, oh, my God, this is quite amazing. I remember Rocky turning around and saying, this is going to be a big club record. And I turned around and said, no, it's not it's going to be a big record period. And uh, it did. It went to, um, yeah, ended up at number two. We were kept off the top by uh, Gareth Gates doing Spirit in the Sky. <laughs> but we sold more records. And what did David Byrne think? He loved it. 
he absolutely loved it. And when we did Top of the Pops with David Byrne, which was a, a moment I, I will never, ever forget because we had an argument with the Top of the Pops producers because they wanted us to be like a kind of, you know, jumping around the stage band, what, to a house record? And, um, you know, we said, no, we're going to sit there and look lazy. We're going to look bored. And David turned around to them and said, look, you know, I just want to dance while they look bored. So they had to agree to it. So David did. He did this amazing kind of, I can only describe as a chicken dance. <laughs> and, uh, Rocky was lying on a bed. Me and Diesel were sitting in front of computers, not actually doing anything. And all I can say is that record ended up in the nation's psyche after that moment. And it, it won you an Ivan Novello Award as well. It did. And I think that was the last one ever given as the best dance record as an Ivan Novello. How's that? Mental. Amazing. Uh, have, you, have you got the actual award? Yes, yeah, I'm looking at it now while I'm talking to you. <laughs> Polish it every morning. <laughs> I think it's about time that we got into the first of your five picks from the 45 in this uh, record box here of mine. Um, all the questions are on 45, Steve's. Okay. So I'll dip in. You just say uh, when or, or whatever you want. Well, go on, pull, pull one out. Yes. Okay. The first one here Was there a day when everything changed for you? Um. I suppose it would have been the the Black Science Orchestra, wouldn't it? Where were you? Am I answering that correctly? I would say so. Yeah. 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 I'm thinking that uh, Norman, uh, Frankie Knuckles. Yeah, I guess so. Well, I think that's where everything changed for me in terms of me entering into the world of being a producer. Yes, that would be it. Was there a, ever a time when you were ever going to do anything else, when you were going to jack it all in? No. No. There's times when I've felt very low. There's times when I have said to myself, do I really want to be doing this anymore? But you get up in the morning and then you work out and you just go, no, nah, of course not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. wonder what you might have been if you hadn't done all this. My dear wife says to me that if I hadn't been doing all this, I probably would have been some sort of therapist, I think, you know, talking to people and helping them get on with their lives. Well, it's uh, it's definitely a good skill, <laughs> as we're, we're all hearing. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's uh, a big turning point. Time for uh, question two. Yeah. Just say when. Uh, now, yes. <laughs> What's the biggest mistake you've made in your DJ life? The biggest mistake I've made in my DJ life? <laughs> God, there's been a lot of those. I think the biggest mistake I've ever made in my DJ life was um, I was DJing at a club called Yellow um, in Tokyo. And sorry to say, I was a little bit inebriated, I think. <laughs> I was very, very happy. Uh, the crowd were going absolutely bonkers. And <laughs> I don't know what made me do it, but I remember taking the needle off the record and it all just went silent. But instead of like putting the needle straight back on the record, I just looked at everyone and I just thought, oh God, what do I do now? <laughs> and it took the promoter to walk over to me to put the needle back on the record again and everyone was happy. And then I thought, I will never ever do that again. <laughs> I bet it felt like a lifetime, didn't it? Yeah, it did. 
the travel, I guess you do a bit less than you did now, but was it a, a great part of your life? You know what, well, all the travelling was a great part of my life at the time. And, you know, travelling to places like Japan was, uh, for me, the pinnacle, I suppose, of my career at that time, you know, as a DJ, as a jobbing DJ. And I absolutely adored, you know, having the honour, if you like, to go and play places like that and to see the reaction by so many different people to what you're actually doing and you can't beat it it's just one of the best feelings in the world yeah i mean you've played thousands at venues festivals yes do you make eye contact ever do you, is that important do you see the whites of eyes yes i think it's very important to share what you're feeling through your records if you're not feeling anything then that's going to come over I think it's something that's very, very important as a DJ that you gear yourself up to the show. You show love. You have to, man. <laughs> if you're playing beautiful records like that, you've got to be showing some love, right? So, yeah, I think that's got to be reflected. DJ, DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. I personally think that the whole edit thing's been overused and I don't think a lot of them are being done properly. I played out the dub plate and the place going into bloody ecstasy. Ashley Beadle. Okay, uh, another question. Into the box and say when? When? Oh, this is, I guess this kind of follows on from what you've just said. Um, how does being a DJ make you feel? Being a DJ, uh, how does it make me feel? It makes me feel enriched, I think. I mean, it's all about communication, right? If you, music is like, the language of the universe. I know that sounds a bit, I'm not on drugs, so don't worry. But <laughs> for me personally, you know, it's just spreading a message of love, period. To play music to people and to see music do that and make people feel happy, that's enough. It's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Uh, very much, obviously, about the life experience. Tell me uh, how that compares, that feeling that you've described with going to number one in this was in 2003 with the remix that you did of Elton John's Are You Ready for Love? Um, it's, I don't know. It's weird. You know, it's two different feelings, I think, for me personally. I've described the DJing aspect and what it does. But, you know, to get to number one with the Elton John record and say Lazy as well, getting, you know, top five with that, it's just a feeling of accomplishment that you've worked on something and job was done. Absolutely brilliant, you know, and when you get people coming up to you still now going on about Elton John and still going on about Lazy, I always say to my wife Jo, you know, it, at first, you know, you sort of get a bit tired of it, then eventually it goes into you and it becomes a bit of a happy albatross. So now I accept it with grace and honour that people, you know, still come up to me today and they talk about all my old records, remixes, productions you know, collaborations, etc., and, and you can see the love in their eyes that those records have done something for them. So all power to that. And uh, with those two in particular, um, still as credible now as, as they were when you released them, how did the Elton John one come about? Well, it's funny, actually. The Elton John one came about because um, Southern Fried Records asked me to do the, um, the re-edit. Now, the interesting thing was I never got paid for it, which is good because all the money went to... Elton John's AIDS charity um, and I was told that and they said look you know we'd love you to do a re-edit because they didn't have the parts all they had was um, that copy of the track so I went in with uh, I think it was my 
Frendushi, who was one of the Ballistic Brothers, and um, she's a sister, by the way. And uh, I went in there and we did the edit. And it was a very simple thing. It didn't take us that long to do. But then Ushi turned around to me at the end of it and she said, oh, it's a bit of a problem. And I said, what's that? And she said, we've recorded it in mono. I went, ah. And I went, well, let's just leave it in mono. It sounds all right. So I sent it back to um, uh, to Southern Fried Records and they fell in love with it straight away. And they said, it sounds really fat. And I went, yeah, that's because we, uh, we recorded it in mono, you know. <laughs> and they went, how amazing, the fact that you've recorded it in mono. I was like, yes, you know, it's, uh, sometimes you have to do these things. Really. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Elton John rang up and he um, was raving about it. And at the time, he invited me and the Southern Fried record label crew to a concert at Wembley that he was doing. And he invited us backstage to meet him, which was lovely, uh, for about five minutes. And he came up to me and he said, can I ask you something, Ashley? And I went, yes, Elton, please. You know, he went, what's an edit? <laughs> now, I'm sure I must know what an edit was in the studio, but I think he was trying to get out to me what this disco edit thing was. So I explained to him, you know, briefly how that all came about. And he loved it. It was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I love these uh, <laughs> these moments that you've had from Frankie Knuckles to David Byrne and how that happened at Elton as well. Just tell me, how do you describe or define even the, the difference between a remix and an edit? Usually it's about extending the good parts of a great record. They're usually, you know, usually they're old disco tunes. So a lot of stuff gets edited now. Um, but it's about extending the parts of a decent record or sometimes even shortening it by taking out the parts that aren't really that good, but there are some amazing parts in that particular tune that you want to you wanna work. I personally think that the whole edit thing's been overused and I don't think a lot of them are being done properly. And, you know, there's a lot of kids now that are going out and they're doing edits, calling them edits, and they're not being done with any love. It's just because there's a whole, if you like, new genre now you know, where it's like edits. What do you play? Edits. Yeah. No, do you play funk, soul, jazz, disco? No, no, no. I play edits. <laughs> Is that because it's got easier to do with technology? Yes, totally. You know, and, you know, the old edits were done with a tape and a razor blade. And I used to do that back in the day. Um, and it's very difficult. You know, it's a tough thing to do. But now you can do it in logic. But I still apply when I do my own edits and edits for people, the kind of ethic in my head that I'm working with a tape and a razor blade oh really that's interesting yeah and it's got to sound good it's got to be good it's got to be well mixed yeah you know an edit's got to be something that you're representing to people for them to enjoy yeah I uh, when I started working in radio we were still using uh, tape and, and razor blades for editing and it really was a great way of of listening I suppose yes. to, to what you were cutting absolutely and it, it's an art form. And I still think editing's an art form. I just think it's been used and abused. Remember, uh, you know, it, it was essentially uh, when it's gone, it's gone, unless you were capable yeah. of going through all that tape on the floor. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, next question. Uh, I'm, I'm going in. Yeah. Say when. Uh, when? Uh, this is question four. What fills a dance floor? A bloody good record. <laughs> and that's down to the DJ to make sure what fills a dance floor. You've got to be good at your job. I think, you know, you learn to 
gauge a crowd about what fills a dance floor. If you don't, then don't DJ. That's what I say to people. Stop it. You know, because a lot, I think a lot of DJs, they do DJ for themselves. Now, when I say that, I mean, you know, they can be a little bit, mm, they're not looking at the crowd. They're not reading the crowd. You know, they're playing their, maybe their favourite records that they love. Nothing wrong with that. But do that at home. When you're out and out DJing, you know, you have to realise what the crowd are up for. You can play part of your set or are obviously records that you have just bought. They're new. You want to try them out. Brilliant. But you've got to make sure that there are records that are coming usually the last half hour that are going to send that crowd bonkers. You still like those records. There's things like Hard Drive, Deep Inside, which was a Louis Vega Kenny Dope production. Uh, and I remember did my own edit of that. It's like a 10-minute edit. And every time I play that out, places go mental because everyone recognises the tune, but they don't recognise that edit, and that's what sends them bonkers. Yeah. Can you start naming some songs then? What do you start with? What do I start with? Oh, do you know what? That's really hard because um, when I usually start a set, I don't plan my sets as such. I have records that are you know, or, or tracks that I know I'm going to be playing that night. But what I'm going to start with, like I said, you just got to read the crowd. You've got to realise as well what the other DJs played before you. It's a case of, well, here we go. And, you know, and it's just where you start from. I don't, if I'm going to play, you know, put it like this, if I'm going to start off the set nine times out of 10, I'm not going to come in with a like a mental, shall we say, showstopper straight away. I've got to come in with something where I can build my set from. And then I start building it into like, you know, tracks that people are going to go mental for. What's uh, always in the set? Uh, well, that hard drive deep inside, yeah. that's always in the set. And then there's Little Lewis, Why You Fall. Now, this is an edit that was done on a, a record label called Moton. And Why You Fall, when you play that, I don't know why, but people go mental. I mean, I think it's it's an amalgamation of a couple of Little Louie records, but people always go mental, and they always ask me for it. And uh, basically, it's always records like that I look for. You know, things like um, Mass Order, Take Me Away, the original bootleg cut. Well, you know, when you play that, people always love it. People always go mad, and they always come up to you. I mean, the younger crowd you're playing to, they always come up to you and they go, what is that record? Especially now they've got Shazam, which I hate. <laughs> uh, what's uh, your best three in a row, Ash? Well, the best three in a row, I'll tell you what, let's start off with one. Are these records that I've played out in a club and people gone mental for? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say would be Igor Jadranin. Now, he's a, he's a guy, I'm trying to think where he comes from. Oh, Serbia, that's right. And he made a track for me called Boulevard, and I played out the dub plate um, at the Panorama Bar in Berlin, which is part of the uh, Club Bergen. And I remember the place just literally going into bloody ecstasy when they heard it. First time I played it, I was like, oh, my God, what's happening here? And all the punters, once again, were shazamming the track. But the fact it was a dub plate, it wouldn't turn up on their shazams. So they're literally running up to the decks and, you know, bits of paper, mm-hmm. pens. What is it? What is it? <laughs> it's really quite fascinating. <laughs> then the other track I would say is a new track. It's a brand new track, actually. And it's by a Dublin producer called Glenn Davis. 
um, and it's called Special, which, funny enough, and I'm not saying this because uh, it's on her label, but it's on my wife's label, um, F-Star Clear. Um, but we played the dub plate of that. Um, I do a night called Heavy Disco, which is based on um, a selection of tunes like if I like to play. Um, and I've got a radio show called that as well on Worldwide FM. But anyway, cut long story short, played the track. And once again, I've never seen a reaction like it. The place went absolutely mental. And, <laughs> and it's funny enough, the record, that particular record now, everyone has been inundating us with phone calls, emails, etc. When when I can get the record. Can you put me on the list? I'll put you on the list. Don't you worry. Thanks, Ash. Uh, I've got one last question from the box. Uh, Ash, tell me when and I'll dip in. When? Okay. Um, has being a DJ taken a toll on your personal life? Yes, absolutely. And I would say a lot of other DJs would say the same thing. Um, <laughs> the, the the lovely, beautiful woman I'm with now, she's a DJ as well, so she totally understands. Um, but I've slowed down a lot. I've slowed down a lot. I've, I don't do as many gigs as I used to, and that's a personal choice because I prefer nowadays to being a lot more in the studio creating music. Um, it's giving room for the younger crowd as well, you know, and I think you do get to a point where you don't want to be um, on burnout. Uh, I wouldn't want that at all. Um, I've had a couple of, I'll be quite honest with you, you know, I've had a couple of relationships. Not good um, if you're DJing around the world, etc., and you get to miss that person and then that person gets to miss you. Then it turns into hatred. <laughs> no, I was joking there. But no, seriously, it's it's a tough one. It's 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 a it can be a lonely life, DJing, definitely. A lot of DJs as well I know, without mentioning names, etc. You know, it's um it's hard on the mind as well, you know, mental health. Yeah. Um, it's a tough one. And uh it, you know, it's been a, it's been something that happened to me. Um I was lucky to be with the right people to help me get through it but there's still a lot of djs out there um and musicians and producers as well that you know suffer from the mental health aspect you sound like you're in a good place right now yeah i'm a good place very good place yeah uh, a geeky one ash uh what about gear what do you go with uh well for headphones i've got a lovely pair of pioneer headphones i think they're the expensive ones off the top um but they are really really good um dex wise just the classic techniques and for a mixer i prefer a rotary mixer if i'm out djing um so there's a couple of it i like there's one that's made by bozak and there's the dj deep he created his own rotary mixer which i've used a couple of times when i've been out gigging they're really good as well and is it uh, laptop CDJs or vinyl? I use um, I use CDJs now with the USB import for it, mm -hmm. and uh, Void speakers. I heard those the other day. I had to go and do a, a virtual music gig for Mixmag, and um, these Void speakers were wonderful. So promoters, bookers, yeah. <laughs> the man has spoken. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Ash, I've got one last question here for you. Yes. Right. There's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event where there's some bizarre caveat where you have to play the last three records before a global dance floor <laughs> so 
What would those three songs be, those three records? Uh, right, I think it would be Holly Johnson, Follow Your Heart, I think it was called, and that's the Frankie Knuckles, Eric Cupper mix. Yeah. Then I would have Black Science Orchestra, Where Were You? I think that would fit the moment, wouldn't it? Yeah. And then oh, maybe as an ender. <laughs> Just trying to think now. God. Um, yeah, Mass Order. Yeah, Take Me Away. Yeah, Mass Order. Brilliant. Ash, it's been amazing talking to you. This is the first time we've ever spoken. And uh, you remind me a lot of Norman Jay. <laughs> I'm his younger brother, I think. A <laughs> uh, real modesty and... Um, it feels like a, like a gentle soul. Well, I think I've grown in to be a gentle soul. There's been a lot of uh, different things happened over the years, I'd say, but um, I'll save that for my book. <laughs> All right, and then we'll get you back on. Uh, for now, uh, Ashley Beadle, thank you. No, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honour. And that was How to DJ. How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.